coming up on J Sky Chat the podcast. 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 J Sky Chat the way back to the barracks. I don't know what happened, but yeah, I, I crashed my motorbike into the central reservation and woke up about three days later in hospital with my arm and shoulder amputated. Thank you for listening to J Sky Chat, the podcast. Please like, favourite and subscribe and follow me at J Sky Chat on social media. And be sure to check out worldofjsky.com for all things JSky. Okay, so Dan Richards, this is quite a bizarre experience for me because obviously we've done bits together in the real world and now we're having to do this via technology. Um, Last time I saw you, we were booked for an event in London um, alongside Natasha Devon and Molly from Naked Beach to speak about the show and the psychology behind it. And it just reminded yeah. me of the first time we met, which was at the casting for Naked Beach. And I was just so impressed by your energy. You were the only person um, that day that I knew was guaranteed for the show. And I remember saying it to the producers, like, this guy is definitely going to be on the show because <laughs> his energy just doesn't die. And um, when you're filming long days, you need someone like that. But also you're very inspiring as an individual. How would you define your experience on Naked Beach and did you get out of it what you'd hoped to get out of it? So, um, thanks for the introduction, mate. That was, oh, that's wicked. Thank you. Um, I got signed to my agency back in like 2017 <clears throat> and that was, my, that was my second ever job as a, as a signed model. Like, I wasn't expecting to even get cast, to be honest. I just thought, well, I'll go along for the experience just to see what it's all about and stuff. And um, do you know what? One thing I found out of that casting alone was that I thrive around creative people. Um, it's it, it was like an opportunity for me to... I had hair at the time, but um, it was an opportunity for me to like let my hair down, uh, the, the little that I had, and, 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 and just sort of be myself, like completely like unapologetically... And like, yeah, as you said, like I came into that room and you were there, you were the first person I came to. And I just went, I don't know what your name is, but I love your hair. Like literally, I'm Dan, by the way. <laughs> and like, just from there, it was like, um, it was kind of like a, a blank canvas, if you like. I had no expectations. I had no end goal in sight. And I, I, there was certainly no like uh, preconceived misconceptions about what I want to get out of it. I think by the end of that day, I I then I just went. Well, you know what? I think it would be cool to be part of this. I don't know anything of what it's about. I certainly didn't know what body confidence was because I was very new to sort of this kind of. If you want to call it, if you want to call it a label, we'll call it you know a label if you like. But for me, body confidence, as far as I was concerned, at that point of my life, was just something that affected women because you never really heard about it affecting men. So I was kind of like, you know, my am I the right sort of person for this? I'm, I'm a man, you know, yes, I've got, I've got an amputation and stuff, but what is body confidence? You know, I'm, I'm a confident individual. Surely body confidence is kind of a, something that's, that, that gravitates towards it, but it's only really to do with women. And, and, 
And it was just as we progressed through the casting process and, and whatnot, I started to learn a bit more about it. I was actually, do you know what? I was identifying things, certainly with what we were being told about Nick. Well, we didn't even know what it was called at the time, but what I was identifying things in myself and the things that they were trying to put across. And I kind of like, as we went, as we went along, I was like, actually, do you know what? I would really like to be part of this, but if I don't get it, I mean, for a second job to be cast for a TV series, how did I get here? So yeah, for me, that's kind of what it was like, a blank canvas uh, and no idea how to paint. That's a, quite an analogy. I like it, um, but like you say, you were pioneering at the time what was a movement that was picking up a lot of momentum and the whole body confidence thing was was something that was not always led by men. Um, so Channel 4 choosing to include men in the conversation was quite groundbreaking. And um, yeah, in, in a way, the show has become a bit of a cult phenomenon with a select audience that are completely there for life behind it. And now people can watch it whenever they like on 4OD. Um, how did you find working with me? Because it was our first job together. What was that experience like for you? I actually, do you know what? I drew a lot off of you. It's, it's funny, the first thing I ever noticed about you was that haircut you had was awesome. And, and that's kind of what drew me straight towards you. And I remember you had blue nail polish, nail, nail varnish on. You still got it on. <laughs> yes. Um, and I just like, do you know what? He's cool. I like him. I'm, I'm, I'm going to just, I'm going to be a sponge. And, and I really, I, do you know, I really enjoy working with you. Like literally, I mean... It was just a very surreal thing to be in, but do you know what? I remember the day when we were sort of like, we had a day off and during was filming and you were on video call to your mum and I'm, I've never forgotten it. And I was just chatting to your mum and stuff and I thought she was really cool. Like, and I, was, I was like, these are great people. Like, I, this, and it was during Naked Beach whilst we were filming. I mean, as you know, it was a busy, busy filming schedule um, and you know, we were in each other's pockets for, you know, five weeks almost. And we literally, it was as busy as it was and as demanding as it was, um, I just went, this is what I want to do. And I've not had that since, well, I don't know if we're going to touch on this later on, but I've, I've not had that, you know, in at the time, the, the seven years that I've been out of the military. And um, to have that like epiphany, if you like, was kind of a, like a, like a life-defining moment for me. I was like, this is what I want to do. I want to be in a creative environment in front of a camera with really cool people, you know, in front of and behind the camera. Um, how the hell am I going to do this? I have no idea. But I think, do you know what? In life, I think a, a vision and a direction is all you really need. You know, the mechanics of it, you can work out as you go along. So, um, and that's kind of what I've been doing, really. So, but... Working with you, I massively digress and I do that a lot. Um, working with you, I loved it. Like, it was such good fun. Such good fun. Like, I've got such good fond memories of, 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 our, of our time there. You know, you know the, the, um, I don't want to say the good and the bad because there weren't really any bad. It was like a really busy filming schedule. And so the bad bits kind of gravitate from, you know, working long hours you know, getting up early, finishing late and, you know, walking around in body paint and having to stand in the shade all the time. Now, I had to stand in the shade, you know, because I, I didn't have a tan. So I've got this prosthetic on as well. And so if I caught the sun, I'd look like a patchwork cushion. So, yeah, so, but like just all of that, 
the good, the good definitely outweighed outweighed the um, the you know the busy bits and 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 the relentless filming schedule. But as, you know, in spite of all of that, it's like this is, this is what I want to do. Like I've I've found a bit of a calling here. So yeah, working with you is brilliant. There we go. <laughs> That's all I had to say, wasn't it? <laughs> Thank you for the kind words. God, people listening might have to have a little moment to vomit with us ass kissing and stuff. But <laughs> it was um, an intense experience, like like you described. There was long hours, um, and in a sense, we were all acting as therapists for people with a range of emotions in a situation where we'd never been in our entire life. It's something you can you can never prepare for, and we'd have to consume that as well as deal with with filming on a on a big scale and and um yeah emotions were high and the the good times do definitely outweigh the bad times and I'm like you it it was something that I'd always wanted to do like before Naked Beach had come along I was quite um close to doing another similar project and it I just thought you know what the the show that is right for me it, it's the reason I've not been cast for the show that I initially went for is because it the show that I want doesn't exist yet. So I tried to imagine the show that I wanted to do and I pictured it as a show where it was um, a shared experience with, with a cast of people and um, we got to just be ourselves and live in a, a nice house and that would be filmed. Like similar to Big Brother, but in a way whereby we could help people. So when, when the casting for, the, for Naked Beach came along, I was like, this is the show that I'd, I'd imagined. I've, I've got to get this. And I was doing all sorts of weird things. Like when we were waiting to find out whether we were casting or not, I found myself changing my passwords to to things like Mykonos and like leaving outfits around my flat. So like I'd get constant reminders and I was always like willing it into existence in a way. But enough of Naked Beach. Your story doesn't begin with Naked Beach. You touched on it earlier before that you were in the army and this was something that you'd wanted to do since you were eight. I remember you said in an interview um, with Help for Heroes. So your dad was in the army and you wanted to be in the army. Tell me about that chapter of your life. Give me a little insight into that. Yeah, so um, like literally like eight years, like you said, eight, I was eight years old. I was brought up in a military family and... Um, I see my dad going out to work every morning in his in his combat in his ninety fives and stuff, and um, I used to everything from even as an eight like an eight year old boy, and and certainly the years before that, but I mean that's a very long time ago now. But um, I used to I used to curl my trousers up like the army trousers do over the boots and stuff, and walk around like I was you know action man or something, you know playing soldiers in the long grass with my friends. Yeah, when I was eight years old, I said to mum and dad, I was like, you know, when I'm old enough, well, that's what I want to do. I want to join the army. And, and it was you know, at such a young age to have that, that drive and that kind of end goal, if you like, that, that that's my life's plan. Most eight-year-old children, you know, for the most part, like, oh, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a vet, I want to be a doctor. And I was like, I want to join the army. I don't know what I want to do in the army, but I want to join the army. And and so I had I had that vision, if you like, through primary school, secondary school, you know, and, and certainly second secondary school, like, you know, whilst all of my friends were like sort of choosing about what college to go to, what subjects to choose for the GCSEs and stuff, I was like, I know exactly where I want to go, I know exactly what I need to do. And my plan really was for ease of conversation, finish my GCSEs on a Friday and start basic training on Monday. Um, it, it didn't quite pan out like that. I, I failed selection on the first time. Um, I actually walked out of school at 14 years old in the middle of 
in the middle of a double religious education lesson and I walked six miles to the army careers office, pressed the buzzer, walked in and said, I'm, I'm gonna join the army. Because my birthday's in the summer holidays, I was the youngest in my year, so I was 14 at the time. I left school at 15, but yeah, I think I got detention for that. And I, I think I argued the case. I don't remember it very well, but I had to argue my case and I think it went something along, along the lines of, you know, I'm leaving secondary school for the, you know, surely the fact that I've used the initiative to focus on the rest of my life should be rewarded and not punished. And uh, yeah, I got detention and stuff and I had to do extra, extra things for, for religious education. But having that drive and determination, I suppose looking back on it as something that has really kind of benefited me in the long run, like even like nowadays. And so yeah, I, I failed selection the first, first, first selection uh, on my hearing. So I spent 18 months going backwards and forwards for hearing tests until I passed. And, and then I went off, I just turned 17, went off to basic training, which was three months long at the time. And then I, I ended up working with horses. I knew nothing about horses, absolutely nothing. But one thing my dad always said to me was, if you're gonna join the army, make sure you get yourself a trade. So saw horses, my first question was, well, what trades are there? And they reeled a few off, like Taylor, Sadler, Farrier. I said, what's a Farrier? It's a blacksmith. And they said, say no more. That's what I want to do. I love the sound of that. You see all the films, the old films, the leather aprons, banging metal everywhere, the sparks. I was like, that's what I want to do. That, that looks really cool. But for me, joining, so my regiment was a ceremonial regiment. So we used to ride in all the parades, like Troop in the Colour, Queen's Birthday, State Open the Parliament. And um, I was like, I can't really justify being in the military and even if only once, never like deploying on operations, doing like the Green Army stuff, and the stuff that you see on the news and you know, films and stuff. And I, I wanted that. I wanted that that life experience, um, that you know, world experience, if you like. And you know, there's a motto they say when you join the army: join the army, see the world. And so I wanted to see as much of the world as I could before I tie myself down with this trade. So in 2007, I went off to Afghanistan for for six and a half months. Came back from there and I went trekking through Nepal and Himalayas for five weeks, which was amazing. And that for me was my two boxes ticked. I went, you know, that's me done. Um, I'm ready to focus on becoming a farrier. It was agreed that I could make a move towards, you know, the forge where, where farriers work. And I had to do Troop in the Colour of 2009 before I could sort of focus on doing that. And on the 30th of May 2009, I did a full dress rehearsal. So all the uniforms, all the music and bands, um, all people watching, just not the one that goes on TV. The following day, I left the barracks to go and get something to eat and have a little play about. It was a Sunday the 31st of May. Along the way back to the barracks, I don't know what happened, but you know, I, had a, I crashed my motorbike into the central reservation. And woke up about three days later in hospital with my arm and shoulder amputated, you know, amongst a load of other injuries, you know, two broken ankles, this arm was smashed to pieces. I stayed in the military for three years after that, but I suppose at the time I was like, I'm not, this is, this is, this is all I've wanted to do as a boy, you know, I, I, don't, I, I don't know what else I can do after this, certainly as a disabled man. I remember waking up in hospital, uh, you know, initially they, they pulled me out of a coma. Um, it was quite bad. I mean, the accident should have killed me outright. And you know, the doctor came in. He's like, "Yeah, Mr. Richards, you know, you've been in a you've been in a horrific motorcycle accident. You've, you're very lucky to be alive. But unfortunately, after six and a half hours of surgery, we were unable to save your arm and shoulder. And I remember looking over to my, my right hand side of my body, and you know where where this should have been was the pillow. 
like 23 year old man and like the fact that quarter of my upper body's gone and it's never coming back was a massive shock to the system. I got a bit upset. And I remember looking around the room and everyone was obviously visually upset. And I just said to the nurse, I pulled the nurse over and I said, excuse me, I said, you know, in a very sort of drugged up sort of on morphine and ketamine and all sorts um, of painkillers. And I said, is, is the plumbing still attached and working? <laughs> she went, that's absolutely fine. I went, well, do you know what? Nothing else really matters, does it? There's people worse off than me. And this is a scratch compared to what some people have to go through. And I can get over this. I don't have men, you know, cognitive or, or mental injuries. And so that was it. And I suppose looking back on that moment now is the moment I accepted my situation, which enabled me the sort of mental capacity to kind of adapt to this new way of life as a, as a you know for the rest of my life I'm going to be a man with one arm I was right hand dominant so I was like right okay I know what I need to do I need to learn to live with, with a left hand you know for me it was all about winning my independence back um I, I absolutely needed it but I didn't want anyone doing anything for me and so I just did as much as I could given my limitations and my hand was in a cast and a broken arm and stuff and so I learned to become quite dexterous with my fingers. And so I was learning to write, tie laces, do shirt buttons up, all sorts. There's, there's so much I've had to learn to do that you don't really think about needing to do until you need to do it. Like even now, 11 years later, I still find things where I go, how am I going to do that? So I just find a way of doing it. But effectively, the, the accident itself ended my military career three, three years afterwards. So I left the military in 2012. I moved back home to Somerset with my mum and dad in effectively my, my old room. And yeah, that, that's say 2012, September 2012 till about end of August 2013 was probably the worst year of my life. So let's, um, let's just go back on some of the things you talked about. There's a lot to unpack with all of that. And it's it's one of the reasons why I'm, I was so excited about getting you on the podcast today, because what I'm seeing here is a theme in your life of you pictured from an early age what you want to do and you've done it. You've gone into the next stage of your life and you thought, I need to have a trade. You pictured it, what it looks like. You've done it okay, I want to travel the world. You pictured it, you've done it. So you're very much a visual person and that's inspiring. And then we get into the, the level of mindset you've got and it's just so, it's so empowering to hear you say, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it. I'm going to figure it out. And you've done that through overcoming, losing such a, a huge part of your body, but also you coupled that with comedy, which is one of my favourite weapons in the world. <laughs> and I just think that a lot of people will hopefully get a lot out of this story. You were interviewed on um, Sky News by Kay Burley, who's obviously trending today for calling out Tony Abbott on um, a few different reports. But um, on that interview, you did say that the paramedic at the time thought you were going to, he said that you weren't going to make it. Um, and, and now you're going to the next level of your story whereby you, you had to go home. So you are a successful man who's achieved all of the things he wanted to achieve in his life and travelled the world and made it in the army. And now, for some reason, out of your control, you've suddenly found that you've got to go back home with your parents. And you're describing this as possibly the darkest time in your life. But years later, I know from knowing you, from reading up about you, that you've said that, losing your arm was possibly one of the best things to happen to you. How do you get yeah. from the mindset of being in a place where your life can't get any worse to actually this was a blessing? Uh, it's, 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 
it's a very when I tell people that like losing my arm and, and my shoulder is like the best thing that could have possibly happened to me they look at me like I've got four heads and they're like how on earth I mean at the time I wasn't thinking I've lost my arm and shoulder this is going to be brilliant I think it's it's when something really bad happens to you it kind of changes when you go through trauma like I've had to it kind of it changes your entire outlook on life, what you value in life, what you want to do out of life. And once I put it all back together again, the first thing I did away with was where do I want to be in a year? Where do I want to be in five years? This five-year plan thing and, and stuff. I was like, I'm not interested because that's kind of tying me down to something that, to be honest, is in five years' time. And the way the way I look at things now is I live for today. If I do good today, tomorrow will look after itself. If I do good tomorrow, the end of the week's gonna look after itself. If I do a good week, weeks become months, months become years. Tomorrow's not guaranteed, is it? You know, I nearly lost my life completely on a road after coming off a motorbike, um, of which the paramedic thought that once I've been helicoptered to hospital, I'll die on the way anyway. So my outlook on living is just do good for today. That five-year plan thing has its place in the business world. My life isn't a business, do you know what I mean? My life is for living. I rather fill my life with memories. So I try and fit as much, I try and get as many memories and experiences in a day that I can. And even if it's just walking down the road to a cafe, I don't know who I'm gonna meet on the way. You know, I, I talk to everyone on the way, you know, even the people sat and the big issue. I've, not, I've never read the big issue. I've bought a big issue just so they can have a pound. Do you know what I mean? Or, or, or a couple of quid that's in my pocket or something. Because I know what it's like to have nothing. I've been there. Regardless of your position in, in, in society, no matter how successful you are, if you're on your way to being successful, your today could be somebody's dream. Do you know what I mean? So, and I read, I read a saying one day that said, never look down on anyone unless you're helping them up. I actively, purposely go out of my way to help people especially the ones that can do nothing for me, because that in itself, I think, is, is the best food for the soul. These are very good values to have done. Metaphor is the metaphor, isn't it? <laughs> no, this is good. And it's great to hear, like, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this podcast is because people say that guys don't open up or talk like this. So, so it is great to hear you talking so openly about your experience and, and the way that you live your life. I can see, like, on social media, a lot of people are doing this, what they're now calling virtue signalling, where they're filming themselves giving to homeless people and all sorts. But what you're doing is the opposite. You're just doing what feels right as and when you see it not for the gratification of look I'm a good person but because actually it's the right thing to do and from your experience of the world you know that whatever you put out there in the universe does come back and it's not just for that one person but it's for everybody um and I, I just think that that just shows um what sort of a person you are but it, it, it relays back to the strength of your spirit because when you said that you were being helicoptered from the accident that they didn't believe you'd even make it across the journey your spirit kept going and kept fighting and and now it's like I, I don't know where that could lead because your, your history is so varied it all ties into the strength of the mind and a common theme has been how you've exercised your mind 
and in that respect you are very much an athlete but then in the real world you are also an athlete and that you also competed in what is possibly one of the hardest things to compete in you represented team gb in the invictus games which was obviously created by prince harry and i've seen in a few selfies with him on the internet as well how was that experience for you and obviously i know you smashed it you did a very good job um, saying, oh, the Invictus Games, do you know what? That was a culmination of a two-year goal that I worked towards. A series of events happened for me to discover that I like cycling. So, you know, I said earlier, you know, I, that was the worst year of my life. You know, I, I tried to end it all at one point. I got halfway through doing it and what stopped me was my mum finding me. And, and that's when I was like, I need help. I need to get back to London. Um, and then just off the back of that, you know, I worked as a chauffeur for a year and... I was living in a, a caravan. And when I say caravan, like this thing was, ah, oh, it was, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't sell it. To, I wouldn't even let a homeless person live in it. It was awful. The only luxury of that caravan was like, it was plumbed. I could flush the toilet into the, into the main sewage system. Like, you know, I, I was poor as well, but like, I, I, I couldn't afford the gas in the winter. Like, so I, I'd literally go to bed at night with, um, in my fully fully clothed and my old army sleeping bag and my duvet pulled over me and some month most of the months before payday I had no money I had I had peanuts left I would buy packs of custard cream biscuits and I'd buy like six like 50p for like a packet of like 50 or something and I'd buy like with the with the last five pounds that I had I would buy quite a lot of these custard cream biscuits and I'd live dunking custard cream biscuits in cups of tea because I knew, even though it's not the healthiest choice in the world, but I, I knew that it would fill me up for a time that I wouldn't need to eat anything until lunch and I wouldn't need to eat anything until dinner. People I was driving around in my chauffeur car, I mean, I was driving, you know, celebrities, you know, to, to big events and the rich and successful. And I was hired help for the Royal Muse at one point, so working in the palaces, you know, Buckingham Palace and driving diplomats and various dignitaries around. And um, how I was living to the people that I was driving was complete polar opposites. And just one day in like 2014, I just, I had a bit of, an, I had another epiphany. And it was, was, whatever opportunity I get, I don't care what it is. I'm, I'm just going to, I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to take it and just see where we go. And, you know, the events that led to me discovering cycling, I, you know, I, I, I qualified as a scuba diver in 2014. And then, Throughout the entire year of 2015, I applied myself to train, to row in a four-man crew across the Atlantic Ocean, completely unsupported in the world's first all-disabled crew. And I was the only one with one arm to turn up and do it, to turn up. And I stuck with it throughout that entire year against all the naysayers. And that was it. And do you know what? I didn't get it. I didn't get selected. I got to the final five, of which four were chosen. I did my final selection with three of the selected four crew. But that became my greatest achievement. You know, I learned more about myself in that, doing that row and that selection process than I probably have ever since. And it gave me a really valuable life lesson, you know, there's, in that there's, there's no shame in giving up. And absolutely, no one should be made to feel ashamed for giving up. But running parallel with that, there's no success in it either. And you don't need to win and get selected for everything to be considered successful. Um, there's so many different forms of success. And... I actually discovered what I'm actually capable of. I you know I've, I can apply myself and I can do whatever's required of me. And, and so when I got the phone call, you know, unfortunately you've not been selected, rather than go, well, 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 I say rather than go, it wasn't even a thought. 
But like rather than go, oh poor me, oh what you know, oh this is you know, all that hard work for nothing, I went, well I need something else to do then. Um, and I had a bike. Um, and I said, right, well, I'll, do a, I'll, I'll sign up to a couple of rides. I got taught to ski in Switzerland with a, another military charity. And um, as a means of giving something back, that's another one of my kind of beliefs. You know, you should always give something back if you've got the opportunity to do so. So they had a, um, a, a load of tickets for the London Night Rider. So I was like, right, well, I'll do some training. I don't know what I'll do for training. I couldn't afford a coach or anything or a nutritionist or stuff like that. So... I just I bought a cheap little turbo trainer to turn my outside bike into an indoor bike. And I just rode in front of a computer, in front of Netflix films and stuff. And I did the Night Rider. I'd also signed up for a, a big battlefield bike ride across France, which visited all of the, the World War I battlefields. And it was 400 miles in five days. Well, 380, but rounded up. And... I was like, well, brilliant. Well, that's two rides. We'll see how we get on with that and see if I can get into cycling. And, and I'd not planned it very well because the morning that I finished the London Night Rider on the Sunday morning was the same Sunday morning I had to be at St Pancras in London to go to France to start that bike ride on the Monday. And I mean, I, if anyone ever tells you France is flat, they're lying. Um, and um, I suffered a lot on that ride across France. But the sense of achievement I got out of it, I mean, those hills I was going up was... I could have got off and walked if I wanted to, but thinking back to the row, there's a nice view at the top of that hill, but if I get off and walk, I wouldn't have earned it, so it wouldn't, it wouldn't mean anything to me. It would be a nice view, that's a given, but what have I actually achieved if I get off and walk? And, and that was my kind of, that's still my motto now when I go out riding my bike, but the sense of achievement I got out of that one bike ride across France, I went, you know what? Cycling's gonna be my thing. I'm gonna be a cyclist. What can I do in cycling? That's something to work towards. And I'd actually missed the encatchment deadline for the Invictus Games 2017. So I just went, right, Invictus Games 2018, let's go. And I couldn't afford a coach or a nutritionist or anything. So I literally, I used what I had, which was the internet, and I just researched the hell out of uh, training videos and training programs and nutrition and stuff. And so I just self-trained myself uh, self, I self-taught myself really, uh, you know, in a in a performance aspect of cycling, and obviously at the time when I was going through casting for Naked Beach, I was also going through the through the selection process for the Invictus Games. I was using Instagram to track my pro my, my progress in cycling. And that's how I got into modeling because they approached me, and I I thought it was a con at first. I was like, you read about this all the time, like yeah, you want to take your pictures if you give us like eight hundred quid, and then you'll never see the pictures or your money ever again, sort of thing. So I was like, oh, I'll, I'll ignore it, I'll ignore it. And then I remembered being in that car that day, whatever opportunity I get, I'm gonna do it, what it is, I'm gonna take it. And so in the end, I just went, do you know what? Let's throw caution to the wind. This might lead somewhere, it might not. I'll never know unless I try. And they offered me a modeling contract, you know, off the back of it. And, and do you know what? The day I got told that, I was, that I'd been selected by Channel 4 for Naked Beach, the following, it was the same day, sorry, I got the email to say, congratulations, you've been selected for Team GB. So 2018 was a very much, was very much a pinch me year. Like, what the hell is going on? So yeah, did Naked Beach, came back, and then four months after that, went and competed in the Invictus Games. And the Invictus Games for me, that was, that was my, like, my line in the sand, if you like, for, the, for, for my military life. Not, not turning my back on it, but it's, I'm very much a believer in that life's like a story, and every chapter must come to an end at some point. 
but you've got to be in the right, right frame of mind to know when to end that chapter. It's all well and good me going, yeah, I need to draw a line in the sand and I'm going to shut the door in that part of my life and then focus on the rest of my life. It's all part of a process. Yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's a very... Looking back on it, I'm, I, I wouldn't change anything. Nothing. That's brilliant. It's weird, like you say, because sometimes when you're going through an experience, you, you don't realise the bigger picture until years later when you look back and you're like, everything had to happen as it happened for me to get to where I needed to be. I know you briefly mentioned before about a horrible attempt at suicide. Unfortunately, suicide is still one of the biggest killers amongst men our age. But you were strong enough and, and I'd say lucky enough to be surrounded by the right people where you could say, you know what, I need help. What advice would you give to anyone out there who might be suffering or feeling like, as you've put it yourself, like there's nothing more out there for you? What would you say to someone in, in, in your position back then who might not have someone else to turn to? You absolutely, like, you need to open up to someone, even if it's a complete stranger. The minute you, the minute you kind of tell somebody, whether it's, you know, a family member or a friend or whatever, um, the minute you start telling somebody, you know, I'm not all right, I'm not all right. That's the biggest step anyone can take. And like, you know, for me, I, I didn't really, for, for me personally, I didn't actually tell anyone how bad it got. I never told anyone how, I never told my mum how bad it got until about three years later. Seeing how she took that and, and what it did to her, yeah, for me, it's, Whenever, if I'm ever having a bad day, everyone has them, the most positive person in the world was gonna have a bad day. I talk about it. I literally, I'm not happy today for X, Y, and Z. And the minute, the minute it's out there, it's quite, the minute you put it out there, it's like the biggest weight off of your shoulder. For me, my rock bottom became the foundations of which I've rebuilt my entire life from scratch again. And, do you know, I said it a minute ago, I, I wouldn't change anything. Knowing what I know now and what, what I've achieved and, and, and the people I've met, you know, yourself included. The people I've met and the opportunities that have presented themselves have been because of a set of circumstances which have dealt out to me. And the only piece of advice I give to anyone that's going through depression to the point where they think the only way out is to end it all is it's really not. Like, you are a valued person in your own circle you will be sorely missed when you're not, when you're gone. And just tell somebody, you don't have to divulge, you know, the, the inner workings of it and how bad it is. Just tell somebody you're not all right, like things aren't okay. And it's, you know, there's a massive stigma around what it's like to be a man. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah, stiff upper lip and, 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 and yeah, I'm, I'm too manly to express my feelings. And it's, do you know what, that's like, the worst message you can drive home to anyone. So yeah, literally just tell somebody, if you're, if, if you're having a bad day, if you're not feeling well, if you're not, if you know you're not, you know, firing all cylinders, tell someone, literally tell someone. It's the most important piece of advice I could give anyone. It's that first step, isn't it? Like, yeah, it's, it, well, it's not the first step, it's the first leap you have to take. Once you, once you jump from, from, from that stone, you know, to, the dry land, if you want to call it, if, if you like, like, you're, you're well on your way. Half the battle was done there and then. You touched on before that, like, not every day is going to be a good day. And me personally, I can't imagine Dan Richards having a bad day. What does a bad day for you look like? 
<laughs> Bad day for me, a puncher. <laughs> um, um, what's a bad day for me look like? Um, if I bang my head. If I bang my head on like a cupboard door or something. Like li I mean, I've never really spoken about this, but growing up as a... So my mum and dad, so, so my dad, the person that I joined the army for, so they got divorced when I was quite young. Um, and mum had a boyfriend who, he was a very strict man. And the things that went on, um, my mum had no idea about until, um, and, well, until, until we said something. But I used to get beaten up as a, as a boy. Like, um, I was, uh, I, cause I was, I'm the old, I'm the eldest of three and, um, if they were naughty at school, it was seen as my fault. So therefore, I would get the blanket punishment, if you like, you know. And and I used to get hit round the head, and it's always stuck with me. If I if I bang my head, it sets me off for like five minutes. I go really quiet. Um, but yeah, if I bang my head, that's a bad day for me. It's a memory that I've got and an experience that I've got. But like me banging my head on 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 a cupboard is kind of really like it's nothing, isn't it? Really. Um, but I suppose the memories attached to it are kind of always with you. But I suppose a bad day for me, I get very unmotivated if, if I don't go out and cycle. Uh, it's part of my life now, isn't it? Cycling is a massive part of my lifestyle and all the things that, that sort of gravitate towards it, the lifestyle sort of side of it, if you like. Going out and cycling, oh, it's, it's, cycling is like my therapy, if you like, if you want to call it anything. Because when I'm out on my bike, it's just me and the road, and the people I get to meet. Sometimes, I don't know where I'll go, I'll pick a direction and go. And I found myself in, you know, the bottom end of Surrey at some points. And before, by the time I got home, I've done like 100 miles. <laughs> no, I'll get that. Um, for me, like, I totally relate to what you're saying because like, if I don't get to, to do music or record or do something creative that I really love, like that will lead to me feeling very unhappy. Like when I'm in the booth in a studio, it's just, um, it's a time where I can have my therapy and, and let my feelings out and hopefully build something in an area where for years as a child, I was told I could never do it. I wasn't ever gonna be able to sing and all of the negative things that came with that. So I guess for you, cycling is, is your your escapism and your freedom. Um, and, and you probably yourself heard People say things like, you're not going to be able to do the thing you love. It should just be a hobby. You'll know this industry can be so shady. And a lot of the times when you're trying to make it, people would rather see you as competition than allow you to be an ally. And it can be a very lonely place trying to have a better life for yourself when you're dealing with other people's egos and insecurities and people wanting you to fail because they believe that if you fail, then it's one less competitor and it'll improve their chances of success. But I think it's safe to say that through meeting you and working with you, you're not phased by any of this. You see people as people and, and you're happy to be anyone's friend and, and to, to work with or alongside anybody. And that is such a powerful message to send out to the world. And it's possibly one of the reasons why you were chosen to be on MTV's digital show, Positive Inc. Tell me about that because I've only got a little bit of time left in this podcast and I still need to talk about this chapter because you've done so many crazy things. Yeah, so so positive positive inking. Uh, so I got approached, I got asked to do that. Um, 
And my first question, I said, it's not just tattoo of us, is it? I said, because I don't want, I don't want to be ruined. I don't want to have a, I don't want to have a really bad tattoo um, and then regret it for the rest of my life sort of thing. So once that was explained to me, that's not what it is. It's a positive thing. Absolutely brilliant. Um, phenomenal tattoo art. I mean, the two tattoo artists are, are amazing. Um, Danny and Danny Robinson and, and, and Jodie Davis. Um, and she designed me this tattoo um, from pictures that I'd put into a, a Pinterest folder and sent to MTV. And what she designed was literally amazing. So I've always been into, I've always found like Native Americans fascinating, that whole culture from a very young age. I loved it in school and, and she designed this tattoo around that and the Invictus Games and stuff. And oh, it was just brilliant. It was such a great, a great uh, thing to be part of because I love tattoos anyway. If I could, I'd be covered. And the catch of positive inking was I can give them pictures and then the artist will design something, but I can't see it until it's finished. So um, there's one point in it, I'm like, oh, it really hurts. We got half, we got the first hour out of the way and we had a break for half an hour, at which point the skin starts heating up and there's like another four and a half hours to go. So it was just like, it was just really painful and stuff. And, but you know, I persevered with it and, and whatnot. And, and like the finished tattoo, like this one on my leg is probably the best tattoo I've had. It's nice, you know what I mean? It's really nice to sort of actually, do you know what, to see, I look at my tattoo and I, I, th I think back to what that, what that bit meant and what that bit meant. And I go, do you know what, I've actually come quite a long way from those dark days where I tried to end it all. And I'm quite proud of, I'm literally, do you know, without sounding narcissistic, I'm quite proud of what I've been able to achieve out of something so bad. You should be proud, Dan. You've done so much. Like, I'm proud of you, and I've only known you for a small part of your life. But, gosh, that's a big statement to say about that tattoo, because I know you, you've still got the, the naked beach one on your arm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, for people that don't know who might be listening, um, Dan and Ben from Naked Beach got matching tattoos um, in the midst yeah. of filming and um, with the initials of themselves on with um, Felicity and Aisha. Um, yeah. That is another memory, like you say, you can look back and you're you straight back there at that time in your life. Wrapping no, this interview yeah. up, I want to say a huge thank you for, for being so open and honest on this podcast. You've touched on a lot of topics, which I'm hoping will not only help people listening, but I definitely think they've helped me and shaped some of my future decisions as well. I think it's very inspiring. Um, what was your reason for agreeing to do this podcast with myself? Do, do you know what, Jamie? Ever since I've met you during casting for Naked Beach, like I've never forgotten you. I've never forgotten you. And then once it all finished and stuff, and like, I see what you do and how you go about doing stuff and just how you're like your own person and you don't care what anyone says. Like, that's what I love about you. And, and I'm always messaging you on, on Instagram. You know, oh, this is awesome. You're doing really well. And, and like, I don't see you as someone that I once worked with. I see you as a friend. And like, you know, I've got a very small group of close friends and, and you're in that, absolutely. So when you, know, when you asked me to do it, it, was, it, weren't even a it weren't even a question of, do I want to do it? Do I not want to do it? I don't know. It was like, yeah, when, when do we start? Like, oh, do you, know what? do you know what? I literally, what made me want to do it is you without actually coercing me into doing anything. Thank you. That is a lovely note to end on. Thank you so much for your time. And um, a big hello to, to your girlfriend as well, because you've managed to have lockdown romance, haven't you? 
Oh, J-Man, it was so nice to chat to you. Like, I've been looking forward to this all week. Me too, me too, pal. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, well, I'll definitely be in touch. I'll comment on a, on a caption or a, or a story. You're always supporting me. Like, every time I post something, like, a lot of people are too... Um, people don't like to show love on social media unless you like... Beyonce or someone no one really wants to show that much love and support so when you get people that do you you remember it and and you're one of the few people that that isn't afraid to say something nice and yeah it helps because when you are putting new ideas out there and and new things and you're trying to progress like every little bit of a booster really does help you to keep going so I thank you for that as well I do I tell everyone this you're a product of your environment you know and that includes on and off social media and 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 oh, I just like literally whenever I watch whatever, even if it's a picture of like trees and the sun, and in your caption with the blue highlighting thing, I'm like, oh, that's nice. I like that. Yeah. Thank you for tuning in to J Sky Chat the podcast. Please like, favorite, and subscribe, and follow me at J Sky Chat on social media. And another thing, check out worldofjsky.com for all things J Sky. J Sky Chat the podcast.